This is episode 199 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, Was Robert Ludlam Consumed by His Own Brand? This episode is part of our Sunday literary series during the pandemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. The Hades Factor was published in year 2000 by Robert Ludlam and, listen carefully, with Gail Linz. It's the story of evil, greedy people armed with a virus who are stopped by good guys. We'll talk more about the book in a minute, but you should know that The Hades Factor is the first of the Covert One series, a series featuring John Smith. Really? You couldn't come up with a more interesting name than that. Anyway, John is a military doctor who was also a troop commander. And despite his super boring name, he's a rather incredible character. You know the type, mesmerizing, women notice him, crack shot, tough as nails, intelligent, always on the side of good. Anyway, so although Covert One is only mentioned at the very end of The Hades Factor, this book is listed as the first of that series because several of the characters go on to be part of Covert One, a top-secret U.S. agency of political and technical experts. Covert One has gone on to have 12 books in the series, one published nearly every year, the latest of which was published in 2015. Now here's the kicker. Robert Ludlam died in 2001. Hmm. You could argue that the Hades Factor, published just before his death, did carry some of Ludlam's ideas. Wikipedia says the the book grew out of a short treatment that he wrote for NBC. But for any of Ludlam's original ideas to be included 14 years later— It seems unlikely. Here's how Grand Central Publishing, a division of Hachette Book Group, promotes the Patriot attack, which was the latest. So the cover says at the top in giant letters, it says, from the creator of Jason Bourne, a covert one novel. And then in even bigger letters, it says, Robert Ludlum's trademark sign, the Patriot attack, And then down below, in smaller letters, it says, written by Kyle Mills. Got all that? It does make you wonder if having a trademark created for the possessive term Robert Ludlums might be a sign that something has kind of gone sideways in your literary legacy. Maybe it's all on the up and up and Ludlum thoroughly understood what would happen after his death, but I do wonder... In his lifetime, he wrote and published 21 books, uh, written all by himself, presumably, although three were written under pen names. The Hades Factor, 
published in 2000, was the first that had that with credit to it. And that was the first one he had published since 1997, three years before. And this was from a writer who had published a book every year or every other year since he began publishing in 1971. And as we'll hear later, following 1996, Robert Ludlum's life did take some uh, changes which were not for the better. After his death, five more books were published by St. Martin's Press without any co-writing credits. Okay, maybe he really did have drafts or manuscripts lying around, but I'll be blunt, five books? I doubt it. Then come all the books written under the Ludlum brand. I thought I had actually made that term up, but no, that's what it is officially called, the Ludlum brand. There have now been 26 books written under the Ludlum brand, far outstripping his own production. Only four were with St. Martin's, which I have to say is a very reputable publisher, before they sold the rights to Grand Central Publishing, who has now apparently sold them to G.P. Putnam's Sons in 2020. In the past 10 years, they've published about two Robert Ludlum's books per year, which seems to be the typical publisher's idea of just enough to avoid the dreaded overexposure. The Bourne books are especially egregious, to me at least. So Ludlum wrote three, Bourne Identity, Bourne Supremacy, Bourne Ultimatum. I n never read them, but I thought the movies were great, classic American movie thrillers. But now there have been 15 Jason Bourne books. I mean, really. Surely the guy has died of adrenaline or high blood pressure, or surely not every bullet fired at him has gone wide or something, right? And who is reading all these books? There's more to say about Ledlam's legacy and being subsumed by your own brand, especially when it comes to your own death. But let's talk about the Hades factor for a minute. First, it's odd that it's called that. There are no references to the Hades factor in the book at all. The book is about the Hades project, an evil plot to infect and then cure the planet of a terrible virus. That's actually a better name for the book because it was indeed a project, a corporate R&D project with costs and investments and strategic plans and bribes and everything, not a factor. So I guess the publisher somehow decided a cool-sounding, if irrelevant, title sounded better. It's a pretty simple plot, and almost everything is revealed to us very fast. Three apparently unrelated people, all healthy and relatively young, die horribly of an unidentified virus. As usual for these bad guys with virus books, the deaths are really gruesome with blood erupting out of chest cavities and orifices. It's as though suffocating from lack of air leading to organ failure and septic shock as COVID-19 patients die just isn't terrible enough in the fiction world. Too mundane, I guess. John Smith, our hero, is at a conference in London when an old FBI friend calls for a secret meeting back in Washington. 
Meanwhile, Dr. Sophia Russell, Smith's love interest and an expert in cell and molecular biology, is working at the Army Medical Research Institute trying to figure out what had infected these three people who had died of acute respiratory distress syndrome. Her first thought is hantavirus. It's a virus that's especially well-known and very scary to people familiar with the Eastern Sierra. And surprisingly, the Eastern Sierra crops up in this book in a couple of places. One of the victims dies at an army base near Barstow, California, and one of the super cool good guys who helps John Smith has a hideout near Lee Vining, where Tioga Pass intersects Highway 395. You can imagine my surprise when I ran across those familiar names. A bit about hantavirus, uh, which has affected a number of people in the Eastern Sierra. One of the earliest cases was back in the 90s when a staff member at Deep Springs College near Death Valley died, very sadly. And one of the latest, even sadder, a young intern uh, fell ill a few years ago after cleaning out cabins in Bodie, California. The virus is carried by mice and rats, and it's usually transmitted through their feces, especially if they're thrown up in the air and then breathed in. Hantavirus has spread all over the globe, but has been most common in South and North America, especially in Western U.S., Its first known occurrence in the U.S. was when it killed 13 people in the Four Corners region in 1993, most of them young Navajos in New Mexico, many of them relatives or associates of a young engaged couple who died within a week of each other. Hantavirus is not especially deadly. Only 36 of cases in the U.S. have resulted in death. But being misdiagnosed can result in improper or delayed treatment. And as was the case with the young man who was infected in Bodhi, it can make you extremely sick and can have long-lasting effects on your health. Anyway, as bad as hantavirus is, uh, Sophia decides that that's not what has killed the three people she's investigating. She has this vague memory of a virus, some obscure virus, that a research group she worked with when she was a student off in the wilds of the Amazon in darkest Peru. And she calls the scientist who is in charge of that group. Now, what are the chances that she can remember this and that it is that virus and that then she can get the guy on the phone? Never mind. That call was a very bad idea. It alerts the bad guys and puts a target on her back. Meanwhile, John Smith is having an action-packed encounter with a huge, nasty van, which he's fending off in his restored triumph, uh, results in exciting gunfire and multiple deaths, none of which are his, and partly caused by Smith forgetting his phone at home, another one of those unlikely plot devices that I presume the author hopes that we'll forget in the excitement of the moment. This is one of those books where the bad guys swing wildly from being really dumb to being just practically genius, depending on what is required for the moment. There's one scene in which three bad guys allegedly read and search everything in Sophia's office, every file, book, 
paper, everything, and then put everything back exactly the way it was. Can you imagine how long that would take? Anyway, these superhuman bad guys, they do it in just a few hours. There's another time when a researcher does just an unbelievable amount of scientific work, isolating a virus, testing it against a bank of specimens of viruses from around the world, running DNA sequencing. And how long do you think that would really take? Again, he does it in hours. I mean, maybe? Because after all, it is the one and only John Smith. Imagine how much work you could get done if you could work at that pace. Makes me jealous. Speaking of maybe unrealistic, but especially creepy. Remember in the Red Lotus when the doctor examined her own lover on the autopsy table and made this incredible discovery that all the other experts had missed? The exact same thing happens here. Writers must really like this awful image. Okay, back to the story. Quickly and early in the story, we know who the bad guys are. Think of a combination of Muslims, corrupt government officials, and pharmaceutical bros. Anyway, they have the virus, and they intend to make millions off the antidote. The rest of the tale is just to see if the good guys can stop the bad guys, mostly with guns, but also with, like, crazy stunt driving, computer hacking, the Computer hacking, I'll warn you, is really ridiculous. Exquisite timing and lucky coincidences. Here's a flavor, although this is one of my favorite parts because it's about uh, the Eastern Sierra in California. They drove past the towering stream of Bridal Veil Falls, wreathed in its own rising mists and the sheer cliffs of El Capitan. In the distance was legendary Half Dome and Yosemite Falls. They turned sharply onto the North Fork of the Valley Drive and continued on Big Oak Flat Road to its junction with high-elevation Tioga Road, which was closed to all traffic from November to May and often far into June. They continued east through patches of snow and the magnificent scenery of the high country of the untamed Sierras. At last, they headed down the eastern slope, the land growing drier and less lush. As they descended, Marty began singing old cowboy tunes. The meds were wearing off. Okay, I have to uh, interject here. Marty is a sort of idiot savant who appears to suffer from Asperger's, but he's also sort of a computer genius. Okay, back to the story. A few miles before Tioga Road reached Highway 395 in the town of Levining, Smith turned onto a narrow blacktop road. On either side were parched, grassy, open slopes with barbed wire fences marking property lines. Cattle and horses grazed under trees whose black silhouettes stood stark against gold velvet mountains. Marty burst into song. Home, home on the range, where the deer and the antelope play, where seldom is heard a discouraging word, and the skies are not cloudy all day. Smith drove the car up dizzying switchbacks, crossed several streams on rickety wood bridges, and ended at the edge of a deep ravine with a broad creek roaring below. 
A narrow steel footbridge crossed the ravine to a clearing and a log cabin hidden among towering ponderosa pine and incense cedar. The snow-capped peak of 13,000-foot Mount Dana towered like a sentinel in the distance. As Smith parked, Marty continued to fly through his mind, stimulated by the remarkable range of scenery, from ocean to mountain to cattle land. But now he realized they must be near their destination, and he would be expected to stay here, sleep here, maybe live here quite a while. Smith came around and opened his door, and he climbed reluctantly out. He shrank from the footbridge, which swayed slightly in the wind. The ravine it crossed plunged 30 feet. He announced, I'm not putting a foot on that flimsy contraption. Don't look down. Come on. Over you go, Smith pushed. Marty clutched the handrails all the way. What are we doing in this wasteland anyway? There's only that old shack over there. As they started up the dirt trail toward it, John said, Our man lives here. Marty stopped. That's our destination? I will not stay five seconds in anything so primitive. I doubt it has indoor plumbing. It certainly has no electricity, which means no computer. I must have a computer. It also has no killers, Smith pointed out. And don't judge a book by its cover, Marty snorted. That's a cliche. On with you. When they reached the Ponderosas, they plunged into the gloom under the thick branches that towered high above. The aroma of pine filled the air. Ahead, through the tall trees, the shack stood silent. Every time Marty looked at it, he shook his head in dismay. Suddenly, a high-pitched snarl froze them in their tracks. A full-grown mountain lion sprang from a tree ahead and crouched ten feet away. Its long tail whipped and its yellow eyes glared. John! Marty cried and turned to run. Smith grabbed his arm. Wait! A voice with an English accent spoke from somewhere ahead. Stand quite still, gentlemen. Don't raise a weapon and he won't hurt you. And perhaps neither will I. And on it goes from there. If you half lobotomize yourself, it's fun. With the female writer, there are even some half-hearted attempts to bring in a couple female characters who have spectacular bodies and brains, though they usually need protection, and some of the bad guys signal how bad they are by how they treat women. One really odd thing is that Smith has to go to Iraq, where we get to delve into a, a bunch of horribleness about Saddam Hussein. Remember, this was published in year 2000. Mass executions, torture, truly horribleness. Now, why we have to go there is a bit hazy, but it does make for more excitement, coded messages, lots more gunfights, and some tragic deaths. When the bad guys are exposed, and I hope I'm not spoiling the story for you here, because yes, the good guys win. Smith is relaxing on vacation in Santa Barbara when a guy breaks into his room without Smith noticing because plot convenience. And the new guy says, You asked who I am, and I can't completely divulge that information unless you're willing to sign a secrecy agreement. I will tell you this. There are interested parties high up in government who have taken a personal interest in you. They are forming a very small, 
very elite group of self-starters like yourself, mavericks who have strong ethics but few encumbrances in the world. It might mean occasional hardship, travel certainly, and danger. Not everyone would be interested. Even fewer would be capable. Do you find this idea at all appealing? And that's the beginning of Covert One, even though it comes at the end of the Hades Factor. Now, I have to admit that there was a CBS miniseries based on the book. And, you know, usually I run off and watch that for you just to be a completist. But a couple things happened. One, it would have been really a pain to get the DVD. And they seem to have strayed considerably from the plot that I've described. For example, they go to Berlin instead of Baghdad. Oh, you know, just one of those foreign bee cities, which made me even more convinced that they didn't really need to go to Iraq. And then I encountered this review. Uh, so this person gave the movie or the miniseries one out of five stars and labeled it an insult to Robert Ludlum's work, Never Watch This. Robert Ludlum should rise from the grave to beat the snot out of everyone involved in this piece of trash. I would have given it zero stars if I was able to. Absolutely none of the great aspects of the Hades Factor novel made it into this miniseries. The whole story of what Covert One is is completely changed and not even remotely for the better. The characters of Klein and the president are completely changed along with pretty much every other single character. Ludlum was a genius of the spy thriller and suspense. About 0.05% of this bears any resemblance to his work. I was really hopeful for this series to hit the big screen someday. When I found out it was going to be a miniseries, I was still hopeful it would be done well on TV, but that hope was deflated when I saw this. Why do people who make movies slash TV shows based on a very successful book feel that they can do it better just because? Why can't they just make a movie as the book was? Because the book was already a hit. I know certain things have to be adjusted for the screen. While the Bourne movies were only loosely based on Ludlum's trilogy, they were still very enjoyable. The Hades Factor miniseries can say no such thing. The acting is horrible, the direction is lame, and the story has been so bastardized that it makes me fear they might do the same to the later books in the series. Please stop ruining great books because of your massive ego, Hollywood. Ludlum was better than you on his worst day, even dead. Go read the Covert One series, the ones written by Ludlum, not the trash written by other authors to continue his series after his death. They are the only way to truly enjoy what he has given us. Hilarious review. It also shows how fans of Ludlum are very protective. Some themes that are characteristic of Ludlum's brand that you can rely on, it's often solitary guys kind of pitted against the forces of evil that often include government officials. Bureaucracy is bad. Loyalty is huge. Uh, one guy who wavers in his loyalty to the right causes in the Hades factor pays the ultimate price. There's always a clear demarcation between good guys and bad guys. 
There is a surprising amount of romance and romantic talk in this one, which surprised me because that's not what I remember of Ludlum. But I can't prove that because I can't actually remember what other books of his I've read. They do tend to go in one eye and out the other. So maybe I'm wrong, or maybe it's because a woman wrote it, or maybe the brand is evolving. The critics have been hard on Ludlum, as they often are with best-selling, wildly successful serial authors. A one rhymed the name Ludlum with Hoodlum. But one critic from the Washington Post wrote, It was a lousy novel. I stayed up until 3 a.m. to finish it. What's a good comparison? They're kind of like Twizzlers. Vacuous, unabashed in their ridiculousness, but kind of fun and with their own flair. A bit about Ludlum's life before we talk about his death, which is surprisingly relevant. He was born in 1927 in New York City, and he went to Wesleyan, where he got a B.A. in drama. His third book, The Matlock Paper, if you've heard of that, is set at a thinly disguised Wesleyan. It was also there where he met his first wife, Mary Reducha. They married in 1951. Ludlum became a U.S. Marine, and during the 50s and 60s, he produced plays in New Jersey, along with his wife. He once said, I equate suspense and good theater in a good similar way. I guess it's all suspense and what happens next. From that point of view, yes, I guess I am theatrical. He got into writing in his 40s when he was intrigued with the idea of Hitler's rise being funded by international financiers. He wrote a short story that was then expanded into the Scarlatti Inheritance, the first of many bestsellers. And here's how John Williams from The Guardian described it. The Scarlatti Inheritance was a preposterous yet compelling yarn revolving around the notion that back in the 1920s, a worldwide cabal of high-ranking Nazi sympathizers made a plan to ensure world domination. At the heart of the plan is a child called Ulster, reared specifically for the job and now ready to go into action. There is only one person who can stop him, his mother. William goes on to talk about factual information in Ludlum's books. The other keystone of Ludlum's popularity was painstaking research. He explained that he spent about three months on research and about 15 months writing his books. Thanks to that, his thrillers always had the air of being written by a man in the know, an important quality in popular fiction aimed at the male reader. And Ludlum is very much a writer of boys' books, who likes a hefty amount of factual information. It's as if reading a novel would be an unforgivable indulgence if the reader did not learn something concrete from it, how to evade an infrared security system or the precise specification of the latest terrorist weapon. It is a trend that reached its logical conclusion in the work of Ludlum's successor, Clancy, whose books offer enough technical information for the reader to construct his own nuclear submarine. (laughs) So between his books and the movies based on those books, he became incredibly rich. And then things started to go wrong. A heavy smoker and drinker. He had several heart surgeries in the 1990s, uh, 
with the last one in 1996, as we mentioned before, and his health was not good. His writing slowed if didn't stop completely after that. Mary, the great love of his life, passed away from cancer in 1996. Uh, They had been married for 45 years. While he was grieving, he met Karen Dunn, a woman much younger than he was, and he married her right away against the advice of his family and advisors. He was 69. The story goes that his attorneys suggested a prenuptial agreement, and Karen got mad and called his bluff and said she would terminate the relationship, and so he uh, caved and dropped the request for a prenup. Then the story goes, maybe circulated by disgruntled relatives, that the marriage deteriorated, she moved into a separate bedroom, tried to separate him from his friends and family, and complained about her potential future financial insecurity once he died. Shortly before Ledlam's death in 2001, he modified his will to give her more money, including their mansion in Naples, Florida, his estate in Montana, a million-dollar lump sum, and all his personal possessions. Then, on February 10, 2001, while they were living in that house in Naples, the fire department responded to an emergency call and entered the home to find Ludlam on fire, literally, screaming in his recliner, unable to get up. And Karen, the only other person in the house, was in the kitchen. And when the firefighters approached her, allegedly she belligerently told them to F off. I'm fixing myself a drink. It was morning, by the way. She didn't accompany Ledlam to the hospital, and she didn't visit him there. He came home several weeks later, though he was still on morphine because of the pain from severe burns. Shortly thereafter, in March, he died of an apparent heart attack. The fire and the heart attack have never been completely investigated. Sometime later, Ludlam's nephew, Kenneth Kearns, who's a doctor himself, actually, and helped Ludlam often with technical information from his book, was working on Ludlam's biography, which he has since titled The Ludlam Identity. Kearns began uncovering some of this information, particularly the modification to the will, and that a section had been added to say that anyone contesting the will would be cut out of it. Good one. Don't forget to do that if you're trying to grab some old guy's money away from his heirs. Additionally, there was no autopsy after Ludlam's death, and his body was cremated right away. Then Kearns learned that Ledlam had told an associate that someone had tried to kill him shortly before the fire while he was out on a lake in Montana. Ledlam's son, Jonathan, had been working with Kearns trying to get information about his father's death, perhaps because he wanted to challenge the will, but according to Kearns, because Jonathan believed that the fire had been set deliberately. And Kearns wrote, My uncle's three children have received some money. Fortunately for them, the bulk of their inheritance lies in royalties from the lucrative literary estate, part of the fortune that Karen could not grasp. Two years before his death, he had signed a deal with St. Martin's Press, worth $4 million a book, with an even larger fortune expected in film rights and royalties. In 2001, 
the year Robert died, Forbes magazine ranked him as the 13th highest earning dead celebrity with an income of more than $5 million. Karen herself died in 2008 from an overdose in what has been labeled a suicide. Strangely, Ludlam's son Jonathan was also found dead in 2008. And that's probably all we'll know, given how long ago it was. It is ironic, given how Ludlam always wrapped up his books with a bow, with bad things happening to bad guys and concrete endings. As Julian Barnes wrote, books are where things are explained to you, life is where things aren't. It's all rather strange and sad. I can't help but think that this horrible ending is partly because of Ludlam's success to what Williams in The Guardian referred to as his ability to keep the pages turning. His literary ethos and style, so embraced by his fans, have outlived him, but the money just keeps rolling in long after he can enjoy it, leaving behind a legacy of storytelling, yes, but also a sense that, unlike his novels, justice was not served. Or perhaps this is all just how Ledlam wanted it. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.